0: It's your host, Ashley Grigsby, and I am here today with Dr. Anna Naiman, who is a second year endocrine fellow at Riley Hospital, and she is going to talk to us about the big daddy of endocrine, diabetes. Welcome. Hi. Happy to be here. So everyone listening, um, endocrine actually accounts for about 3.5% of the boards, and diabetes is kind of high yield, high percentage of that 3.5%. Um, remember that the highest percentage of anything is five percent. So three and a half is still pretty high for uh, PE sports. But hopefully, we're going to just talk about some of the basics and make it easy. Okay? We're going to start with diabetes type one. Do you want to start with kind of talking about type one diabetes and who kind of gets it, how do they present, and when should we be kind of more concerned than others? Absolutely. So type one diabetes is
1: an autoimmune
0: process. Um, it's called, It's
1: caused by autoimmune beta cell destruction, leading to insulin deficiency. Three-quarters of patients who get type 1 diabetes are under 18, um, so it's important to remember, especially in your pediatric population, if you all of a sudden get a kid who presents with several weeks' history of polyuria, polydipsia, polyphasia, weight loss, you know, alarm bells should be ringing that this very well might be type 1 diabetes. If you have a patient who presents, all of a sudden they were dry, now they're having all these bed-wetting at night in the right clinical scenario that we just talked about, you should be thinking, you know, does this person have uh, type 1
0: diabetes? What's kind of like the, you know, if I'm thinking about it, what should I do? Like, how should I start the workup of type 1 diabetes?
1: So there's different ways of diagnosing diabetes. If you have a point-of-care A1C in the office, you can do that. If you have, you're have, you able to get a dipstick, it does not diagnose diabetes, but if you're worried about diabetes, you can always check for glucose or ketones in the urine. But in terms of diagnosis, it's either a fasting blood sugar of greater or equal to 126, um, a random blood sugar of greater than 200 in the context of symptoms that we okay. talked about, polyuria, polydipsia, etc., An OGTT where the two hours greater or equal than 200. And that's an
0: oral glucose tolerance test? Yes. Okay. So you drink a bunch, it's like you're pregnant. You drink a bunch of sugar and then you take your. Okay. Yeah. But again, we don't typically use OGTT just because it's time
1: constraining. Mm -hmm. But again, you can use it diagnostically or a hemoglobin A1C of greater or equal to
0: 6.5. Okay. And once you kind of make the diagnosis, what do you do? Let's say we've decided it's type. Like, how do we know it's type one diabetes? I guess versus type two. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that's a good question. So
0: first of all, though, the
1: incidence of type two diabetes is absolutely on the rise. It is still much more likely in the youth, like in youth, uh, for it to be type one diabetes. Okay. And so, in the right clinical scenario, you have to still have type two diabetes in in kind of in your thoughts. But if you're talking about you know a five year old kid, I mean, it's going to be. But if they have a positive family history of type 2 diabetes, if they're a minority, if uh, they had a mom who has gestational diabetes, if they have signs of insulin resistance, such as acanthosis, nigricans, I mean, all those things make you think more. they're pubertal, make you think more of type 2 diabetes. But know that even if a patient presents who's obese, they're still
0: more likely to have type 1, especially if they're Caucasian. Okay, okay. So now we've decided that's type 1 diabetes, we've, does, we've made that diagnosis, What, what's the next step in management of these patients? So it's type 1 diabetes, you need insulin. The intensive insulin regimen, either if they're
1: doing injections, there'll be a basal long-acting insulin in, in the hospital, we use Lantus. there's other long-acting, and then a short-acting um, in the hospital, we use Humalog. Uh, you'll also see patients on pumps, and all of that is short-acting.
0: How do we kind of best avoid long-term complications of these patients to
1: know kind of the acute complications are dka and hypoglycemia okay long-term complications happens years after diagnosis due to persistent hyperglycemia and that's been shown in, in multiple um, big trials and so you kind of have to manage keeping them having them have good glycemic control at the same time preventing you know of episodes of hypoglycemia and then what we do in diabetes uh, in our clinic appointments is kind of screen them for these how do you screen them? So you do a urine albumin to creatine ratio, random. I'm looking for um area. You'll do uh, like a dilated eye exam, looking for retinopathy. Um, and those are the kind of, and then neuropathy, kind of the foot exam.
0: And how when do you start screening patients for that? So it depends what you're screening for.
1: So if you're looking for the autoimmune things that I think we'll talk about later, um, then that's kind of, Diagnosis You'll cheat, you'll uh, screen them for a thyroid or a celiac. Um, although, you don't want to do thyroids right when they're acutely ill, okay? And you want to do them when they're at baseline.
0: So, for the microvascular complications, you it's depending on how many years you have diabetes, okay? If it gets all those kind of bad things the kidney things, the eye, the nerve, um, uh, retinopathy, and the um, neuropathy those ha- happen with high sugar. But what happens when their blood sugars get too low, and how do we treat low blood sugar?
1: The main things to know about hypoglycemia is it happens in type one diabetes. You're on insulin. You're going to have episodes of um, hypoglycemia. You just have to have good education, which is what we make sure we strive to do. Most of the time, they're um, they're awake and alert. In those cases, you really just want to do fast acting carbs. But if they are unconscious, that's when you would use their emergency glucagon. And every um, you know parent or child is trained on the glucagon, and you just want to make sure that it's not expired. Okay.
0: And so what's the dose of glucagon?
1: So there's the so it's um, half a milligram you know for the smaller kids and one milligram for the bigger for kids. Anyone, basically,
0: adult. Okay. So I know uh, as the um, the emergency medicine doc inside of me says I really only care about one big thing which is DKA, <laughs> which I know there's more but that's my thing that I worry about all the time. So can we talk about the clinical and the laboratory features of DKA? So,
1: DKA, about a third of patients with type 1 diabetes present in DKA. Um, It's the most likely cause of death in in kids with um, type 1 diabetes. So, it's a profound insulin-deficient state. It's characterized by hyperglycemia, so you're greater than 200. Acidosis, your pH is less than 7.3, and your bicarb is less than 15, along with evidence of accumulation of keto acids in the blood. So, they come in dehydrated with electrolyte losses, with hyperosmolarity. The goal is to correct these imbalances at the same time you wanna prevent any complications from the therapy that you're giving.
0: Okay, so what is the um, next step in management? I've decided they are in DK.
1: what do I do? So initially you wanna give them that 10 mil per kilo bolus of the isotonic fluids, um, and then after that first hour you're gonna start them on the insulin drip. Um, you wanna correct their electrolyte abnormalities, but the main idea is that you want to the main complication you want to avoid with therapy is cerebral edema. That is why they talk about kind of gentle fluid rehydration.
0: Okay. What kind of, how how often do these kids get recurrent decay? And why do they get recurrent decay?
1: Most, I mean, really the cause of recurrent decay is omission of insulin. So if they're older kids, maybe they just forgot. But you also have to worry about kids who are purposely losing weight. So that's an important thing to kind of screen for disordered eating if you're getting that history. If they're sick, they're gonna many times they need more insulin, but usually as long as they're on top of it and we, you know, teach sick day management and they're watching their sugars and they're watching their ketones, you can usually manage it over the phone before they get into significant trouble. Unless obviously they have some terrible gastro and they really just can't keep anything down. Okay. Or their pump isn't working. Yeah, I feel like that one I've seen a lot. Yeah. So even if their pump's not working, as long as they're, so if they're either on a sensor or they're checking their blood sugar and they see those higher sugars, they should be checking for ketones. And if they check for ketones and they're present, then we typically tell them to take, uh, change the site and um, give themselves an injection. So if they stay on top of it, those kids typically don't come in. But if, you know, but at the same time, if they're not doing those things, they can very quickly, um, well, let's say the site goes bad overnight, you know, they can very mm-hmm decompensate because they have absolutely no insulin going in. Okay.
0: We, You've already kind of talk, touched on it a bunch, but the um, autoimmune disorders. What autoimmune disorders should we screen for when we diagnose type 1 diabetes? Like, is there like a lab, set of labs you do for all of your first first
1: diagnoses? Mm-hmm. So we do thyroid and celiac. So thyroid disease is the most common. Um, it's 17 to 30% of patients with type 1. For, unless we get symptoms that suggest it, such as Addison's disease, autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune gastritis, hematomyositis, and mycinus gravis.
0: So, you talked about like family history of autoimmune diseases um, kind of as part of your history taking. What about like family history of diabetes, especially type 2? And then, how do you we should probably switch gears into type 2 diabetes and kind of talk about the differences? So, one thing that is and I think we've already talked about this, but it is important to remember, is that
1: type 2 diabetes is still less common in youth than type 1 (laughs) diabetes, especially if the patient is Caucasian. But risk factors uh, for type 2 diabetes are definitely obesity, family history is a big one. Everyone in the family has type 2 diabetes, minority race, ethnicity, having acanthosis nigricans, having metabolic syndrome, having a mom who has type 2, but also a mom who had gestational diabetes Mm -hmm. as well. And then just remember that even though, you know, most of the patients with type 1 diabetes are not obese, there's still a significant portion that are. And so even if they're obese, if they're especially if they're Caucasian, they probably still have type 1.
0: Okay. I mean, I feel like, you know, it used to be the type 2 was called adult onset, which is kind of sad because we're seeing such bad obesity in our pediatric patients that now it's like, you know, I've seen a lot of pediatric patients with type two diabetes, but how do you, how do you differentiate? Like a patient, let's say they're 14 and they're obese and you're trying to decide is this type 1 or type 2?
1: So that's where it gets tricky. So you want to get autoantibodies that can help you, you know, if they if they have, you know, their GAD-65 and the islet antibody are positive and a patient has type 1 diabetes. Okay,
0: so GAD-65 and
1: islet antibodies? So the ones we get, the three that we typically get is GAD-65 Pilot 2 antigen antibody and um, insulin antibody. Okay. There's some people get the zinc antibody, not here, but in some other centers in, like in a research capacity, if you did the some of the trial net studies. Um, but those are the three antibodies that we kind typically get. Okay. And then the other thing is that it's kind of also how they present. You know, a lot of these type two patients present and they're really asymptomatic. In the sense that, you know, if you ask them, they're like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, I guess I have been drinking a little more, peeing a little more. But they don't have that, you know, history of like weight loss, and you know they look terrible, and all this kind of thing. It's much more of an insidious onset, so many of the times they really they get picked up by screening. Okay.
0: And then, what kind of features would kind of on a history or physical exam kind of tell us maybe they're having insulin resistance to try and catch it before it's like full type two
1: diabetes. So the main thing you really want to look for is that acanthosis nigricans on exam, um, because that really kind of gives you an idea that at the very least that patient definitely has insulin resistance. So it's a process. So the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is made when the hyperglycemia is secondary to the insulin resistance and it's accompanied by an impaired beta cell function resulting in inadequate insulin production to compensate for the degree of insulin resistance. But knowing that, you know, there's a lot of patients that are going to have acanthosis and insulin resistance that are not going to have diabetes. But those are the patients that we, and we'll kind of I think to talk about it later, but those are the patients who really have to think about screening, okay. um, because even if they have pre-diabetes, you know, at that point, you really want to intervene you know, with lifestyle changes and modifications. And, you know, those are the kids that you really want to kind of um, be going after okay. um, to try to do interventions. And who should you screen and how should you screen? So if you are pubertal or 10 or above, whichever comes first, and you have a BMI of over 85, so you're overweight, or you're high if you're obese, plus one additional risk factor, maternal history of diabetes or gestational diabetes, family history of type 2 in a first or second degree relative, race or ethnicity, so Native American, um, African American, Latino, Asian American, Pacific Islander, or you have a sign of insulin resistance or conditions associated with insulin resistance, so we talked about acanthosis nigricans, but also hypertension, Dyslipidemia, PCOS, or your SGA. Um, if you pretty much so, if you if you are overweight or obese and you have one of these risk factors, then sh- you should screen for di- pre diabetes or diabetes.
0: Okay, and do you just screen with an A one C hemoglobin A one C? So you can screen with a hemoglobin A one C. You can
1: screen with a fasting blood sugar. You, you could do an OGTT, although you know that's Again, more time yeah. more
0: intensive. And is the diagno- like the criteria the same for type two as it is t- for type one? So A one C greater than six point five. Fasting greater than one twenty
1: five? The criteria is the same. Um it's greater or equal to six point five, it's greater or equal to one twenty six cut oh, fasting okay. blood sugar or random over two hundred okay. in the context of symptoms or OGTT the two hour of um
0: greater than two hundred.
1: Okay. Uh, but also again you'd wanna kind of check it again on a different day unless it was like overtly, you know, hyperglycemic and you know you know
0: I did accidentally diagnose someone with diabetes once after a seizure.
1: Yeah? Yeah,
0: but then they were fine. They didn't really... No, they looked like DKA on their BMP for sure. And then it was like, went away. Like an hour later. I felt like really bad for the parents. It wasn't my fault. It was a weird story. No one knew anything. But, Anyways, I digress. Uh, Let's talk about the short and long term complications of type 2 diabetes. Sure. And then just one
1: quick thing. So we didn't really talk about pre-diabetes. Oh yeah. So if you're having A1C at 5.7 to 6.4, that's in the pre-diabetic range. Okay. So depending on your institution, you might have different multidisciplinary programs. Here at Riley, we have youth diabetes prevention clinics. So if you do have an abnormal A1C in the pre-diabetic range, you can refer to this clinic. Also, depending on your institution, you Mm -hmm. may have different clinical opportunities for type 2 diabetes. Because as of now, we'll talk about later for management. Right now, we have only one approved agent, oral agent for type one, for type two diabetes. But there are clinical trials going on, including with GLP one agonists, which is also being done here at Riley. So it's just something
0: to think about for those patients. What is the treatment? Like, what is the approved
1: treatment? Yeah. So if you if you have an A one C of less than eight point five and you're stable, you're asymptomatic, then metformin is the and only currently FDA approved treatment for pediatrics. And so you just want to titrate to max effect uh, for optimal glycemic control. If your A1C is greater or equal to 8.5, that's when you'd be starting insulin along with metformin. With the caveat that you're not you know, currently in DKA, because in that case, you would wait on the metformin until obviously the DKA is resolved. And then the goal would be to try to titrate the
0: insulin down. Hmm. I didn't realize you could, so you can't do any sulfonylureas or any of that with kids? None of that is approved from the pediatric population. Interesting. Okay. What kind of what are the short and long term complications then of type two that we need to look out for and worry about? So it's the same. So the microvascular
1: complications are the same. So you're still going to screen for um, kidney disease. You're going to screen for um, retinopathy, but the comorbidities and the dyslipidemia and the hypertension you look for in both. And so as well as the psychosocial concerns such as depression, which is huge in the adolescent population and. It's very important to screen for. We do PHQ-2 and PHQ-9 because if they're depressed, they're obviously not going to take their insulin. If they're not taking their insulin, then their glycemic the control is going to be terrible, which will then lead to these longer-term complications. But along with those, you also have to think about obesity-related complications, such as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, obstructive sleep apnea, so you have to get a good sleep history, orthopedic problems. PCOS is a common thing that comes up. And so you just also have to think about those core
0: We see a lot of adults with diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Does it mean, is it worse if the kid gets it? Absolutely. We know that
1: evidence suggests that in type 2 diabetes, it really is a different beast than type 1 diabetes, not only because of its unique features, but it has more rapidly progressive decline in beta cell function, accelerated development of diabetic complications. So the incidence of type 2 diabetes has really increased in the past 20 years. The thought is there's about, there's, about 5,000 new cases every year in the US. And so, using the current projections, the thought is that there's gonna, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in those under 20 is gonna quadruple in 40 years, which is, I think, pretty crazy. It really is a different beast than type 1 diabetes. Their risk of complications, earlier complications, is much higher than type 1 diabetes. And that is why we really kind of screen them early, you know, at diagnosis. They can easily have hypertension, they can already have dyslipidemia, they can already have uh, fatty liver, and so um, that is why it's really important to intervene with lifestyle modifications. So on top of pharmacological therapy that we already talked about, lifestyle modifications is a huge part of type 2 diabetes management, and it kind of can't be stressed enough. Interesting.
0: While we're kind of on this topic, we'll kind of, I was hoping to end with the metabolic syndrome, which I think... Previously, has been an adult problem. At least, I see it more on my adult in my adult world. But what is the metabolic syndrome, and kind of what are the risk factors, and what do we need to worry about in these
1: kids? Um, so, with metabolic syndrome, you have dyslipidemia, hypertension, obesity, particularly trunkal obesity, and you know insulin resistance. So, again, management is really weight loss, so good nutrition, increased activity,
0: stop drinking juice. All the time? Water is important. They don't believe me when I tell them that. Good. But they don't need juice. They all think they need juice. Um, but no, I mean,
1: it's very important. Moderate to vigorous activity, at least 60 minutes a day. really want to kind of limit screen time to less than two hours a day. But the really important part about all of this is you really have to target this to the family. Because if it's not a family intervention, people aren't going to do it. As well as understanding that people come from different backgrounds, and so what you consider. You know, nutritious food might not be what someone else considers nutritious food. And so you really have to individualize your dietary suggestions as well as your activity suggestions to make it actually feasible for the people that you're talking to.
0: All right. Well, I think that was diabetes in a nutshell. I know we could probably talk about it forever, but uh, appreciate you uh, making it a little bit easier for us today. Any wow. last words?
1: So I think my last kind of interesting to say, is that in our studies from first-degree relatives of patients with type 1 diabetes, if you have um, persistently two or more autoantibodies, it is almost a certain predictor of clinical hyperglycemia and diabetes in the future. So if you have a patient in clinic that you see that, I mean, you know what's going to happen.
0: Hmm, That's interesting. One, One day, I- maybe we'll be screening people for it.
1: So talking about screening, it is important to know that um, the trial net type 1 diabetes pathway to prevention is nationwide and exists here at Riley. And it specifically screens relatives of patients with type 1 diabetes, you know, because those that do have positive autoantibodies can um, enroll in some of these prevention trials, depending, you know, how many positive antibodies, and then also they can follow them throughout life.
0: So an upcoming area of research? Um, A very well... All right, well, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me.